0: Compassion, loving kindness, and altruism are the keys not only to human development, but also to planetary survival. Real change in the world will only come from a change of heart.
1: Hey guys, it's Kathy Heller. This show is meant to be a guide for you. We're going to talk not only about how we can start to become aware of what are the subconscious things that are holding us back and how we can instead choose thoughts that are actually going to propel us forward. But in addition to changing the landscape internally, we are going to talk about the strategies that actually will help you to build a profitable business Getting paid to be you because when you have a business where you do what you love, you never really have to have that sense of work because it's a pleasure, because it's joy. And really, I want you to have the most abundant life. I want you to have the kind of life that you love waking up to every day that you don't feel like you need a vacation from. So together on the show, every single episode, I want to be your friend. I want to be your mentor. I want to show you what is it that I think has really been insightful, been helpful? What are the tools and strategies? What are the mindset shifts that have helped me? And what are the things that have helped my guests to get to where they are? How can we together sort of cross this river to the most fulfilling life where we show up and we feel like we are living into our potential and having the most gorgeous, beautiful experience? Because after all, that is what we all desire. We're all craving to have the most joyful, beautiful life And I really believe that we can design that and that we can experience a life that we just absolutely love. And not only will we enjoy it, but it will be a possibility for other people. It will show other people what's there for them. And then maybe together, each one of us, by being the happiest versions of ourselves and being the most fulfilled versions of ourselves, we will help other people to reach for that higher branch and to find that in their own life. Hey guys, it's Kathy Heller. Welcome back to the podcast. Today, we have a beautiful conversation with Patrick McDonald. Before I share that with you, I just want to let you know that we have a few spaces left for our retreat in June in South Florida. If you want to be with us, you can go to kathyhower.com slash retreat. It's going to be pretty fun. There's so much happening. Uh, we're having my hypnotist come in and doing a hypnosis session. We're having Sarah Platt Finger, who runs all of yoga for Deepak Chopra's Chopra. She's coming to do yoga. We're having a Reiki session. There's going to be meditation every day. We are going to truly have an extraordinary time. If you'd like to be with us, go to kathyheller.com slash retreat. I believe that there are about eight spots left. Also, we are doing a virtual retreat and that's going to be on June 5th. If you want more information on that, you can go to kathyheller.com slash code. That's going to be an awesome day. We're going to have two incredible women coming in. One is an expert on human design and the other one talks about nature and flower magic and how we can Really find sanctuary in nature, which will be incredible. And if you come to the in-person retreat, by the way, you get the virtual retreat included. But if you just want to grab a spot to the virtual retreat, you can do that as well. Go to kathyhoward.com/code. That's going to be virtual all day on June 5th. Well, today Patrick McConnell is here, and he is the creator of the award-winning comic strip Mutts a New York Times bestselling author, and he's also an artist. You've probably seen Mutt's because it's been in over 700 newspapers in 20 countries for over 25 years, and the great Charles Schultz actually called Mutt's one of the best comic strips of all time, so you know that it has to be pretty special. Patrick has written and or illustrated over 10 picture books, two which have been adapted as musicals for the Kennedy Center stage. His most notable books include The Gift of Nothing, me jane which is the childhood biography of jane goodall and he illustrated guardians of being which was written by eckhart tolle earlier this year he collaborated with his holiness the dalai lama on the book heart to heart a conversation on love and hope for our precious planet it's a very sweet and powerful story about how we can create a compassionate revolution to heal our relationships with the planet and all the creatures that are living here because we are indeed all members of a single family sharing one little house It's such an important message, so please do yourself a favor and go get yourself a copy of the book. I've been such a fan of Patrick's work for years, so this was a true honor to speak with him. He's one of the most genuine, humble, and kind souls, and everything he does radiates with so much love. There are lots of gems in this conversation, and I know you're going to love him. So without further ado, please welcome the very genuine Patrick McConnell. Patrick, thank you so much for coming and, and being a part of our show.
0: Oh, I'm so happy to be here. Thanks for having me.
1: Oh it's such a treat. I've known your work for a long long time and I'm not surprised that you found yourself collaborating with some of the most special people including his holiness the Dalai Lama because your work has such goodness in it and such beauty in it and it talks about some of the most simple truths. But I want to go back to the beginning how you you yourself started on your creative path like what was the first spark that led you to to know that maybe you would go into this world later on in your life?
0: Oh, Bud, you know, that that's funny you should use the word spark, because my journey started when I was probably around four or five. I grew up in the 60s, so I was totally in love with Peanuts. And, <laughs> Me too. And Peanuts was done by Charles Schultz, and all his friends called him Sparky. That's where the spark comes in. That's so interesting. And, uh, You know, Peanuts was my religion as a kid. I read those books every night before I went to bed. And uh, ever since I was a little kid, I just wanted to be a cartoonist and give back all the comfort and joy that I got from uh, Sparky Strip. That was my dream as a little kid to do that. And I, I was lucky enough that the dream came true. I went to art school. Uh, I didn't immediately did comic strips. I, when I got out of art school, I was doing magazine illustrations. I worked for New York Times and Sports Illustrated, but I knew I wanted to do a cartoon. And when I finally got a dog, a little Jack Russell named Earl, I thought he would be the great, a good star for a comic strip. And I started my strip, which became a combination of my love for comics and my love for uh, animals. And uh, then so much happened, and I was... Been doing MUTS now for 29 years. And, you know, through Mutz, I was trying to draw my comic from the eyes of the animals. So when I started really thinking about the animals on this planet and realizing how tough a lot of them have it, you know, I think they really put out a lot of compassion and empathy in me. And that became the focus point of the strip. And uh, I've been lucky enough to work with Eckhart Tolle on a book called Guardians of Being. And I was lucky enough to, uh, work on a children's book about Jane Goodall as a young girl. And now I'm lucky enough. You said you weren't surprised, but it's a surprise (laughs) to me that I got to work with His Holiness the Dalai Lama.
1: It's all just so beautiful and radiant and yummy. And it's so lovely. Let's talk more about the essence of what you just said that the comic turned into really compassion being a theme. I mean, I just feel like that's the biggest deficit we have in the world. It's not money, it's <laughs> compassion. Let's talk about that. What is it that you've been wanting to communicate all these years? What has been resonating um, along those lines of compassion? What it What is it that you want your audience to understand about that?
0: You know, again, I'll go back to Peanuts. I mean, there was so much kindness in that strip and just art, how much... And, you know, the other thing for me is you know, making art is a form of meditation. So that, you know, that was my happy place. And with the animals, you know, with, when I got my dog, I wanted a dog my whole life because of Snoopy, but I didn't get him until I was in my 30s. And uh, just all that unconditional love that dog had. And I said, you know, if I'm going to do a strip, that has to be such a big part of the strip because, you know, that special bond everyone has with their pets, I wanted that to be a big part of the strip. And, and that bond is love you know, and compassion. So I knew that was going to be the message of this trip, and then I got lucky that um, the Humane Society of the United States saw my strip and they asked me to be on their board of directors, and that just opened up the scope. You know, then I learned how tough it is for you know farm animals and animals in the wild, and just how crazy the world is, and that. You know opened up my script to talk about some of those subjects so that you know we need to be compassionate for all the beings on the planet.
1: Oh, it's all so beautiful, you know it's one thing to have an incredible intention, but it's another thing to see it land right, and there's a lot of beautiful people with a lot of talent and and goodness and they don't always have the same level of success right it's something else entirely when the world receives it and it it goes viral so to speak right people really take to it what was the turning point where you saw that this thing you were creating was really grabbing hold of people's hearts in some real visceral way why do you think it's been so successful like what do you think is happening with your readers, that makes this what it really is?
0: Well, you know, I think it's because of that special bond we have with our pets. You know, my readers are have a cat or a dog or both or everything else they could have. And hopefully they connect to how Earl and Ozzy's relationship. And we just love our pets. And, that, and that's how the book I did, Guardians of Being with Eckhart Tolle, uh, happened, I'm sure people are familiar with Eckhart Tolle he wrote an incredible book called The Power of Now which really spoke to me incredible. And I, yeah and I just became I became a big fan and started listening to all his tapes and reading all his you know books and one of the things that uh I related to with I that he, he used nature and animals and even our pets in particular as he calls them guardians of being that our pets help us get into the present moment you know if a Cats on your lap per and it's hard to think about your troubles. You're with the cat. And same with your dog, you're out throwing the ball with the dog. You're not thinking about all the troubles in the world. So um I started collecting his quotes about dogs and cats and, and animals in particular, and started putting some of my strips with these quotes. And I thought it could make for a nice book. And I got lucky that my um agent Was able to get in touch with Eckhart and uh, Eckhart liked the idea. We've got to do the Guardians of Bean book uh, together.
1: It's so true what you're saying. I have four Persian cats, and (laughs) one one of them was just here. I say that he looks like a Jim Henson creature. He's so cute and so unconditional. And yes, it's so true. Like whenever any of them are around and they're purring. And I even was reading recently that the frequency of a cat's purr. It's so coherent. There's something in that frequency that like Mm -hmm. really puts you in the rhythms of your own presence. Um, It drops you into that energy, which is really powerful. And cats also, I know I'm riffing on cats for a second, but I also just was reading like cats feel the energy before the person walks in the room. You know, dogs are like that too. I don't know, but they feel it. Like They really get you grounded because if you walk over to a dog or a cat and you're not coming from something that feels like peace, they're not going to go along for the ride. They're witnessing not what you're saying, but how you're being.
0: Yeah, no, they're in the now. And um, so I think with my comic strip, people could relate to their own cats and dogs, and people let down their guards when that happens. I mean, I see it all the time. If I ever have to go to a, a business meeting, if you ask even the toughest guy in the meeting or a gal in the meeting, about their pet at home they light up <laughs> oh my everything changes the world becomes free and happy all of a sudden so that's just I think the magic of animals so I think I can reach people because they let their guards down and they're in that happy animal mode and you know, I, I don't want it to be preaching, but it became easier and the comic strip is such a strange funny medium People read it every day, and usually in the morning, and it becomes part of your. Like you feel those characters are part of your family. I mean, it's so it's more of like a conversation around the breakfast table. So I was able to, I think, talk about some tougher animal issues, but in a more pleasant family way. That, um, and then again, people have their guard down with art and comics, and it's a magical.
1: Yeah,
0: I mean, you see that in Peanuts. You know, all the all the topics that Charles Schultz spoke of in a quiet, kind way. It's definitely a unique artistic medium.
1: Yeah. I always say that everything is synchronicity all the time. If you're in the flow with yourself, things sort of echo back. And of course, yesterday, what did I take my kids to see yesterday? You're a good man, Charlie Brown. Yes. <laughs> um, so what were, what were we playing in the car on the way to school? Happiness. That's what we were playing. So of course, you know, it would be like the entree of this conversation. What did it mean to you that you wound up connecting with him in your life, Charles Schultz, and that he wound up finding such value in your work? That must have been like a like a surreal moment. It's,
0: you know, it, you really realize life's a dream. It's so big and so small at the same time. You know, when I did get to meet Charles Schultz, you know, I showed him that the strip wasn't in the newspapers yet. I actually showed him my initial drawings and he really liked them. And I, I felt like that was it. I was done. I didn't even have to put him in the newspaper. Charles Schultz liked him. And uh, he actually helped name. You know, I wasn't sure what to name the dog in my strip. And he was based on my own dog, Earl. But I thought he needed a funny cartoon name. But uh, Sparky said, name him after your own dog. And uh, I thought he might know what he's talking about. So I took his advice. <laughs> but Charles Schultz was everything. You bought Charles Schultz to be. Just You knew he was the guy who drew a peanuts. He just hadn't all that warmth and all that humor in
1: him It's so moving. And I know a little bit about his history and the fact that, you know, he had the history he had and still wanted to just talk about kindness and put that in the world is it's like, he's such a hero. Mm -hmm. It says so much about you that of all the people in the world, you chose him as the person you wanted to most emulate. You know, it says so much about your goodness And from such a young age, you kind of recognize kindness and wanted to put that in the world says so much about you. And it takes so much courage to show someone like Charles Schultz your drawings before they're even out there like that. That says a lot about your own ego and where you were able to overcome that. It's awesome. We're going to go more into the depth of what's been in some of these books and the most recent ones. But before we do, I'm just curious for somebody who wants you as a mentor for somebody who wants to do this, to be an illustrator, to write, make comics, what piece of um, guidance or advice would you have for maybe possibly having an ounce of your success?
0: It's real tough nowadays. I mean, I wanted to be a newspaper cartoonist and it's tough to tell kids today to be a newspaper cartoonist with the state of newspapers. But the art of words and pictures is never going to go away. That's so. Right you know, between graphic novels and there's still cartoons online. And that form of medium, I think, if anything, it's getting bigger. I mean, images are so important nowadays. People are definitely reading less, but they definitely like their images. So there will always be a, you know, a home and a place to express yourself with words and pictures. And my advice is just the old advice everyone's always given: is like, you know, just be true to yourself. And the other thing is, how can you serve the world? What are you here for? How can you serve the world? What art can you do that's going to help? Especially nowadays, I think that's more important than ever. And art helps. I mean, I think it's uh, humanity at its best when it is at its best.
1: I love that so much. We had this man here, Dr. James Doty, who wrote this book called "Into the Magic Shop." He's a neurosurgeon. He also works with the Dalai Lama on a big project, and just wrote a book with him also. And he he said, "Magic is real, and when you." have a goal or an intention that at its core is designed to serve the whole world. It's Mm -hmm. amazing how quickly those goals get reached. It's like when you cut your finger and immediately your body goes into repair, it's like the world is designed to conspire to help when what you're doing is to help. And I think we lose sight of that. And I, I love that you are such a torch of that. And your work is is really an extension of that, so obviously.
0: Well, you know, that that's the main point. His Holiness makes in the new book, The Heart's heart, that he's asking for a compassionate revolution, that, you know, we have the power to change all of this. We just have to uh, get our hearts and minds in the right place. And it's such a simple message, but it's just crazy how it's so hard for humans to do. You know, just be kind.
1: A hundred percent. And it's, you know, we get caught in this, like amygdala, you know, in this part of our brain that puts us into like fight or flight. And then everything is another as opposed Mm -hmm. to oneness, right? So it's all separateness. And that's the biggest illusion of all. And I have a meditation practice that I've developed since like 2007. Do you have a practice in your own life of, you seem like you're very palpably present, Do you have some kind of a practice that you do
0: that helps you open your heart? I do meditate not every morning. I was better at it. I've I've been a little busy sort of (laughs) uh, missing some of my practice. But, you know, what I really do believe is, like I mentioned before, I I think making arts and meditation. A hundred
1: percent is true.
0: You know, I think most of my day I'm not here. (laughs) You know, I'm uh, in the moment making the art.
1: It's a hundred percent true. I mean, they're even saying now that the data completely shows that if you're coloring, and this is why we see monks making mandalas, right? I mean, there's, mm-hmm. there's a level of presence that it's uncanny. You know, if you're sketching, that's it, man, you're in the flow zone. So <laughs>
0: yeah, That's yeah. funny. I, I've said that. I think, you know, when you do a daily comic strip, that's a lot of art. And I always compared us to monks illuminating manuscripts. So we just sit there all day and get the work, do the work. There's a constant deadline.
1: It's incredible. Let's talk about some of these beautiful books. You, you just mentioned the newest one, which we'll go into in a second, but The Gift of Nothing. Tell us about that book and what did the readers really take away from that? What does that even mean? I love that title, The Gift of Nothing. What does that mean?
0: That's my first children's book. And it was actually based on a 2 week story I did in MUTS. And it was a simple story of it was the holiday season and Mooch wanted to give Earl, his best friend, a gift. But you know, Earl's the dog and Mooch know he had a bowl and he had a chewy toy and he had a bed, so what else? He had everything. There was nothing else to get him. And uh then he fell off like if he has everything, I'll get him nothing. And in the book he searches to like, where do you find nothing in this crazy world where there's so many somethings he couldn't find nothing anywhere until he finally went on his cat bed and got quiet and kind of did a meditation and started purring and realized he found nothing. And then he put it in a box and put a bow around it. So he gives Earl this box at, at the holiday, and uh, Earl opens it up and said, there's nothing here, which says, nothing but me. And then the two of them hug. And I think it's a, it was a good gift that the holiday season where we, you know, it's all about consuming, but it's really about giving to each other.
1: My God, I'm like totally weeping. It's um, oh, it's so beautiful. You know, it's like, what do people want from you? Your presence, your attention.
0: Yeah, that's the best gift you can give. And uh, you know, I had the pleasure to do a children's musical of it at the Kennedy Center in Washington in Washington
1: D.C. Oh my God, that's so amazing! Who wrote the music?
0: A guy named Andy Mitten. And it was really and I And I wrote and it was directed by another great director named Aaron Posner. And what was fun is like in talking to the director, it was important to me that at some point in the play where Mooch gets on his bed to, to meditate and find nothing, that we were going to have a minute of silence. And he was like, you can't do a minute of silence. In a yeah, kid's that's a bed. long time. Yeah. But, you know, we did it. And the actor was so good. He wanted the kids to join in the find nothing and this was for like five six year olds so during the whole play it was just pandemonium but in that 30 seconds minute they all really did get quiet it was amazing at one performance a kid stood up and screamed i found nothing so uh that was a fun play to do i love that so much you know it's
1: interesting um i've done all kinds of different meditation retreats and things like that but In the last few years, my favorite meditation is going to the place in my own consciousness where I'm nobody, Mm -hmm. and I'm nothing, and (laughs) no one, and I'm in no time, and I'm I'm nowhere, you know. Because our souls—that's it. There's nobody. They're not a body, and they're nowhere, and they're no time, and there's nothing, and it's the most—it's the most full feeling. It doesn't feel like (laughs) nothing. It really feels like something, you know, because you're not an ego and. I mean, that's just so beautiful. Let's talk about this newest book a little bit more. First of all, what was that like for you to work with him on a project? I mean, it must also, to use the word surreal, what a gift for him to be with you because you're so genuine and what a gift for you to be with someone like that. And however many meetings it was, whether it was four or 12 or months, I don't know, but What do you feel you gained just in the process of working with him?
0: Well, well, uh, just to be living with those words. And that that was probably the ultimate meditation. I mean, it's the first time I was doing much for 28 years without a vacation, really. And uh, I took a six-month sabbatical. So it was six months I could just stay in that head and stay in that world. And it was powerful. I'll tell you how the book got started. It actually got started in Africa, believe it or not, and I used to be on the board of the Humane Society of the United States, and one of my board members planned a trip with his friends to go to Africa and invited my wife, Karen, and I to go. So we went and there. We met his wife, Pam, who sits on the board of the international campaign for Tibet, and one night we were under the stars talking about how fragile and beautiful Africa was, and she started talking about this holiness, the Dalai Lama, and how you know, the environment is such a strong part of his message now. And she knew my work and she particularly liked the book I did with Eckhart Tolle. And my wife said, well, maybe Patrick can do a book with His Holiness like he did with Eckhart Tolle. And she said, that's a great idea. And she brought it to the board and she came back. And the board presented to the Dalai Lama and his staff. And they came back and said it was a great idea.
1: Oh my gosh, all these things make me cry. It's so cuz it's so beautiful. You know, beauty makes you cry. It's incredible. I I got to see these pages in this book and every word and every illustration, you're so talented. Like when I first went to look at it, I was like, I wonder what these illustrations are going to look like cuz I've seen the comic strip for years. It's its own world what you created. I mean, it's so breathtaking and sweet and right on. It's just Something about illustration that it carries a message even further because it's we all have that child in us. Mm-hmm. And there's a part of us that we really want to be talked to from that place. So, yeah. You know, yeah. Well,
0: you know, I think for me, what what I'm proud about the book is I think it tells His Holiness's message in, in a different way. And when you add the pictures and the way the pacing of the book it forces people to take time. You know, it slows you down. I mean, all these words, you know, when it's just words, they're all beautiful and amazing, but there's a lot of them and you just keep on. Yeah. But when you edit with art, like in this book, it's usually one, two sentences at the most per page. All those messages, Eckhart Tolle's, the Dalai Lama's, I mean, they're slow. They're talking not to your brain, but deeper and into your heart. So I think the more we can slow that brain down, the better the message gets to the person. So, you know, with this book, we were trying to reach a new audience in a different way, that the words really, you know, each sentence was important. And in the Dalai Lama, each sentence is important.
1: Yeah, it's so true. I don't know. Did you see the the animated short film, The Boy, the Mole, the Fox and the Horse? Do you know this No, I,
0: think, I mean, I, I have the book, but I haven't seen the film yet, no.
1: I mean, that totally proves everything you just said, you know, because it's the words are one thing, but the pictures and then it just won the Oscar. You know, I've been watching him make those illustrations for years and to see it become an Oscar winning short film. I mean, you don't need any of that. I'm just saying this book could definitely be turned into a short film with those like that is. And it was so wow to me that we've gotten to a place we've awakened enough that they would know that that was worth an Oscar, like that we're willing to receive that level of goodness and put it in the mainstream. So I don't know, I'm just putting it out there, who knows, but it's so true. There's no doubt that the illustrations just bring it into a different realm. What are some of your favorite passages from the book? I just want to give people a little taste of just maybe a couple of the things about the book that land when all is said and done like what's one page or one line that really stays on your heart
0: well if you don't mind i'll I'll read so
1: we would love Uh, that
0: yes so this page he talks about here i'm quoting compassion loving kindness and altruism are the keys not only to human development but also to planetary survival real change in the world will only come from a change of heart what I propose is a compassionate revolution. And I think that's what this book is. It's a plea and a cry to that. We, we need to really work on that compassion. And then with compassion, you know, being the guy who draws mutts and spending my life trying to speak for animals, my favorite page in the book is where the Dalai Lama speaks when he was a child traveling to his palace, you know, as a four-year-old the thing he remembered most was all the animals he saw on that long journey. And then at the end of that talk, and I draw all the animals, and that was a fun part of the book for me, drawing the animals.
1: I imagine. But
0: uh, at the end, he speaks that, unfortunately, most of them don't exist anymore. You know, it's not the same if you did that travel. And there's a drawing where he's kneeling, and he says, perhaps one day we will kneel down and ask the animals for forgiveness. I just think that's so powerful. Yeah, that, yeah. So that that's my favorite page in the book. Uh,
1: I was just telling this story on Friday night. We had a bunch of people over. I'm Jewish. We had a big Shabbat dinner. And I told them that when I first went to Jerusalem, I met this very holy Kabbalist rabbi and his family. And he took me in. I learned with him and lived in the old city and had this incredible experience. I was there for a few years. And I remember one time saying to him, what's the holiest, most spiritual thing I can do while I'm in Jerusalem. And he said, I have something for you, you know, come back in a few hours. Like I'll finish up what I'm doing and I'll tell you. I was like, "Well, oh. oh. I was like, oh, this is going to be good. You know? Yes. And this was in the days I think like Eat, Pray, Love was out and everybody was looking for, you know, where's the fountain of youth? What's the holiest thing I can get my hands on? And he said, um, what I want you to do is, um, and we're already like in the old city of Jerusalem, right? So he's like, you're going to go down this little street and then you're going to make a quick little left. And then you're going to go up like three, uh, there's three doors. It's the third door. It's a blue door. I want you to knock on that door. And I'm like, oh my God, what's going to be in this, right? And he says, there's a woman in there. She's a widow. I want you to offer to do her dishes for her.
0: Wow.
1: And I started to cry because I got it. And he goes, you know, the most spiritual thing you can do, (laughs) go help somebody. Wow. And he said it in the most loving way. And I, I just got it. You know,
0: what what a great answer. What a great teacher. And it was just like,
1: you hold the key to the greatest riches because the only thing you ever will get is what you give away.
0: Wow! That's it. And, and you know that reminded me. Here's one in the book where he says, "This is my simple religion. There is no need for temples. No need for complicated philosophy. My philosophy is be kind whenever possible, and it's always possible.
1: It's always possible. Um, one of the meditations I do is like a loving kindness practice, right? And it's just like putting your focus on your heart and opening it, and like feeling yourself open it even more." and now open it more. And you're like, Oh my God, I really can. It's like Bob Marley was right. Like you can really open your heart. You know, like this is really something you can cultivate. And as soon as you do, you're the big winner. You're the big winner, right? Because all of a sudden, everything on your screen is beauty
2: Mm -hmm. and
1: you're not in lack anymore. And all you have is what to give away. You're an overflow. The good news is I feel like It's undeniable that more than ever in history, there's a level of consciousness that's, it's palpable, right? And there's a level of darkness that's also palpable. But like 50 years ago, there
0: wasn't a yoga studio in every corner.
1: This this was not a thing. You know, this was not a thing. I
0: was going to say, we are living in strange times because it seems so dark. But you're right. I mean, underneath that, I think there's a consciousness level and an awareness that is better. Than it ever was. And it just seems like the clock's ticking. When are we all going to wake up and do the right thing?
1: Yeah. At the same Shabbat, I was asking my rabbi whose parents are Holocaust survivors, you know, do well, you think about this question, you know, about the darkness and the light and like, what does it all mean? And he was saying something I hadn't heard before, which was like, I guess it's Newton's third law of physics is that for every force, there's an equal force of an opposing hmm. force or whatever. I don't know how to say it. I got to look it up so I could say it as he actually meant it said, but that kind of is what we're talking about. I think that like, because there's a lot of darkness, there's an equal amount of this like heightened awakening, right? It's like on one side, the pendulum swings one way there's like this. And so there's a way in which we can see as dark as things are. If you look over here, there's brightness that's never reached this level also. And that's something maybe to just keep focusing on. And more of that. And if you focus on it, what will happen, you'll find more of it. And you'll let it in. I think one thing people can do is stop watching the news, you know, and just because when you go through your day to day actual life, everyone you meet at the bus stop, on the subway, at the restaurants, they're all nice. You know what I mean? Like people want to get along. It's just on the news. It looks really dark. I feel like so.
0: You're so right. During the last three years, I've taken sabbaticals from the news and I've always been the habitant, but it always, it always drags me back in.
1: Yeah. I actually got rid of my TV in 2006, but then once I had kids in 2011, you know, they wanted to watch their little shows, but then we got rid of the TVs during the pandemic because it was just a negative thing. And then I also curate my social media like that, where I won't follow anything unless it's like, sweet things. Cause I just want to, I just, that's all I want to really look at. Cause really I want to stay in a high vibe so I can give that away,
0: you know? i tell you, you know, I've been lucky. I've, I've gotten to meet some incredible, you know, Jane Goodall, Eckhart Tolle. I'm also friends with Byron Katie and Stephen Mitchell. I'm not sure. I if you love
1: know. Byron Katie. She's been on the show. She's on another <laughs> level of human being.
0: Yeah. I... And the thing they all have in common, and I think about it all the time is every one of them is just so positive and optimistic. And then, and when things get dark, I think, well, Jane Goodall could be optimistic. Yeah. And if all, all these people who know so much more than I do, if they could stay optimistic and be positive, and there's so many opportunities to get pessimistic nowadays, that I, that, that always stays with me, that you know, one of the greatest things they have is that they just have optimism, and have faith in the planet and the universe. You
1: know? Oh, a zillion percent. Byron Katie makes all problems disappear.
0: Yeah.
1: <laughs> no problems. None. It's just how you're looking. You're just believing something that's not true. She's, she's amazing. She's like a Jedi. She's incredible. And it's interesting what you just said, how you narrowed that down to optimism because Angela Duckworth came on the show and talked about grit and how she wrote this book and did this TED Talk, which was very well received on her research that shows that what makes people successful is not intellect or status. It's their grit. It's their resilience. And she said, what's important to know in the research is that what correlates with resilience is optimism, is that the people who are the most successful and the most gritty, because she said, you can't be Jonas Salk if you don't wake up every day and say, I know there's a cure for polio here. You can't (laughs) be a cancer cancer researcher and not be optimistic because most of the time you're going to, hit zeros, right? You're not going to get a winning shot, but because you're optimistic, you will see it through. You will have the resilience and you will make it so. And so she said, the greatest leaders are the most optimistic people because in this doesn't matter what it looks like jfk was like we're gonna put a man on the moon when he said that they didn't even have the technology to to know what he was saying they're like did he really just say that like what, what is he talking about but we did because he had the optimism and it's the optimism that is the most intoxicating thing if you think about his holiness the dalai lama the glow on his face
0: oh my god yeah
1: it's plus plus it's all positive right yeah so, that,
2: that was
0: that was the toughest thing for me like I'm not a great caricaturist and I'm not a realist, but what I try to do is I try to capture (laughs) feelings and emotion. And with his holiness, just trying to capture that joy and peace in his face was the challenge because uh, as soon as you look at him, you just, you feel good inside. Yeah.
1: Yeah, And what I often say is like, that's because his joy is not coming from the the outside, right? Mm -hmm. He's not looking around. And therefore deciding that he should be pessimistic or not based on the environment. It's like he projects his own sense of peace and well-being so he could sit in traffic or he can be in the most beautiful place and he's going to find his Zen, you know, and we all can do that. We really can like he's evidence of what's possible. You know, he wouldn't want someone to see him as like, oh, well, that's only for you. Like, no, the whole, it's the opposite. And that's the work that you're doing together. So for people who are living in quote unquote, that real world, which is not as, it's not as real as it seems, but the world of of self-doubt, the world of, right. What's one piece of like encouragement you might have? Because I think there's a lot of people who doodle or draw and They're afraid to put it in the world because they don't think it's good enough, you know? And as somebody who is so successful, they might look at you and say, well, it's easy for him to say all this because he's so successful. But I'm sure that as you were drawing at 5, 10, 11, you know, 20, you were making messy things until you made more brilliant things. But that took optimism. That took courage. So how did you get through those stages and be willing to put out there what you had in the moment before it was perfected
0: you know i think it's that grit you're talking about and belief in yourself you know it's funny I, I just knew when i was five years old i was going to be a cartoonist i didn't have any doubt that's what i was supposed to do i mean that the book i do with jane goodall called me jane That was Jane. She was the little spunky kid and she knew what she was going to do. She was going to Africa and and boy, I mean, her story's incredible because back then, little girls weren't supposed to have dreams like that. She had that dream and damn no one was going to stop her. She never had a doubt. She had that grit and that determination and um, for me, just believe in yourself. Believe in your work and and success is a funny thing. I mean, it's it's great that I had success, but You know the real success is becoming a helping others and becoming a great person. So even if your art just makes your family laugh, it's still a great thing to do.
1: So that's a really good perspective. Did you have encouragement? Did you have one person or two people? What did your parents? What was their take on it when you said, "Mom and Dad, you know, I want to be a cartoonist"? What was the encouragement?
0: No, I'd say that that was my uh, you know real luck was my mom and dad. Neither one of them became professional artists but they actually met at Cooper Union Art School. So they loved art. You know, my mom ended up being an art teacher at a vocational school, and then went on to become a vice principal. But um art was encouraged in our house. You know, we had paper and art supplies ever since. So my two brothers and my sister and I, art was just part of the house. We I mean, we all drew and thought it was possible to, you know, to be a cartoonist. It's funny, though, when I was in High school. I did have a doubt when it was time to decide what college to go to because I was good in school and I was thinking, well, you know, maybe I need to go to a real college to get a real job. I think that lasted about a half a day, <laughs> <laughs> and then it was like, no, I'm going to be a cartoonist. So uh, there was maybe a half a day of doubt when I was in senior year in high school.
1: Did your other siblings become artists?
0: You know they didn't, but any one of them could have been. And they stole all doodle. My one brother plays guitar, so he became a musician. Uh, my other brother is in video, so that's an artist. When I think about it, yeah, they you know—they didn't do the drawing art, but they did music and video, and yeah, so they all have kind of art jobs.
1: So, what do you think then about kids in school? And the need for more arts and I mean, cause I know for myself having had this podcast for six and a half years and talked to so many brilliant, wonderful people, it makes me want to unschool my kids. Like it makes me only want to put my kids in a room with clay and just say, go like, you know, what do you think about the need for creativity in children or what's your perspective on the way
0: kids traditionally
1: don't have so much access to that.
0: Yeah, art is real important. You know, again, it's a meditation, and you also find your personal voice. So, uh, I think that's as important as all the other activities and the curriculum they get. The arts are—it's definitely a, an important part of development.
1: You know, yesterday I was taking my daughter to a party. It was a ceramics painting party. She's in kindergarten, and we made a wrong turn. So I said, "Oh, Maddie." Mommy made a wrong turn it's at the other place you know we got to turn around and she said to me my art teacher said that when you make a mistake in art you just make something that's accidentally brilliant that's it's a different kind of masterpiece is what she said to me and my husband I told him that later he goes you have to write that down that's amazing and I I think that that is why it's so important to have art in your life because Every other thing they study, they they know what the answer is the teacher's trying
0: to get. Uh, and in exactly. art,
1: that's not the
0: case. My God, she she learned a valuable lesson there for life. for I everything. Know.
1: Forget art just for life. I know. It's amazing. What are you hoping with this newest book? If a compassion revolution, let's say like that's the highest bar of what we would hope for. And what's the... First thing, like when somebody finishes reading it, what's one thing that you're hoping changes within them?
0: Well, you know, it's it's an opportunity to um, remind yourself of what's important. There's so much noise out there with our electronic devices and just all the craziness. But um, I think this book reminds you what's really important. And if you can keep that in your heart and your head, that could be very helpful. The other thing I thought, which is a little different than other books by His Holiness, is that this book's a story. And, you know, Jane Goodall was once asked, how do you you change people's minds? And she Mm -hmm. said, that's the toughest thing, especially when you're dealing with heads of countries, and heads of companies, because they got all the answers in their head. And she said, you can't change their minds, but you could change their hearts. And then they asked, well, how do you change hearts? And she said, you do it with stories. And I just thought that was a great answer. And that's, I think what's nice about this book is that it is a story, you know, the story of a panda coming to his holiness and trying to find some answers. And like, people change their hearts with stories. I mean, that's that's what we do. We tell stories.
1: That is one of the most beautiful things I've ever heard. And because it's not just beautiful, but it rings so true, right? It's like that story I told you where the rabbi told me to go wash the dishes. Yep. Like if I would have tried to tell you some philosophical thing that you said to me, you'd forget it the next day Yeah, because it's not that it doesn't grab you the same way, but you're right. The story of it makes Mm -hmm. the point so much better than trying to make the point. And you're right. I think about it now. You think about these people standing up in Congress and they're just all trying to make points and talking over each other. And maybe that would be an amazing thing if they had an assignment to stand up and tell their stories. You know, because yeah. I think Mr. Rogers said, there's nobody who wouldn't love you if they just heard your story.
0: Wow. Well, isn't right? he? And yeah, Mr. Rogers, he's one of my all-time heroes. The best.
2: I mean, yeah.
1: it's the same vibration of all these things we're yeah. talking about. You are like that, Charles Schultz. It's just a vibration of goodness. It's just peace. It's just sweetness, right? And um, I love this conversation because it is amazing how all the time we're trying to be productive, right? We're trying to be successful. That's like for sure in the Western culture, like that's your biggest priority every day is how successful can you be? And Mm. what we've been talking about is what kind of person can you be? And maybe that's the barometer of having the most success, the most joy. And it's so important to just keep that conversation going especially because putting your ladder on the wall of, I want to be the most successful. Oh, is that an exhaust? That's a never ending ride to more. You just keep needing more. So in your own life, when you're not drawing, what are you doing? How do you spend your time that makes you feel present or at peace? What do you do when you're not drawing?
0: Well, I know this is going to sound crazy, but when you do a daily comic strip and other book projects, I'm drawing.
1: You're like, actually, that's all
0: I'm doing. You know, God bless Charles Schultz. I mean, for how famous he was and how much money he made, he was a daily cartoonist. So that's how he saw himself. You know, he did, it was the work. How you know, long does you, it
1: take you to do a daily cartoon? How many moments? How long are you sitting to do one cartoon?
0: Well, you know, I, it's changed over the years. I'm at a place now where I. I do batches. I do four weeks in one sitting. And that sitting is usually a little less than two weeks. So in those two weeks, I'm just at the drawing table, you know, getting that work out. And then I have kind of a week and a half off. And that's when I work on the other projects, the other book projects. So I'm pretty much at the drawing table. Other than I walk my dog. Thank God for my dog. See? And then I walk my dog. And I I really like to paint. So uh, my uh, free time, it, it's still art, but I just do it for myself. I do big paintings and I don't have to think about why they're being done or who they're being done for.
1: That's amazing. Is it abstract stuff or is it
0: landscape stuff? What do you think? Yeah, it started as abstract, and now I'm starting to throw a couple of figures in there. So uh, I guess the storyteller in me still wants to tell stories.
1: That's amazing. Do you go somewhere in nature once every few months to like
0: refuel? Well, you know, even when I do my strip, there's a beautiful little garden in walking distance from my house. So I, I take my notebook and I sit in that garden and I don't leave until I have at least two weeks worth of jokes. But the weather's good. And the way the weather is nowadays, we didn't really get a winter this year. So I was able to work.
1: What part of the world are you in? Where do you live?
0: I'm in New Jersey, Princeton. Okay.
1: Okay. So yeah, it can be really cold for many, many months. Yeah, But that's so sweet. I also think that's such an, another level of skill. Like, let's not forget, not only are you drawing and sharing compassion and kindness, you have to make it funny.
0: Yeah.
1: Does that ever feel like pressure? Like, how do you deliver that over and over and over again? What do you attribute that to?
0: Well, I always say uh, daily cartoonists aren't allowed to have writer's block. And, you know, I think a lot of it has to do with faith. It all comes from the universe you get that's why I talk about making arts of meditation. You get in that zone, and somehow things come and sometimes it's corny. sometimes the characters write themselves sometimes. You live with these characters for so long. <laughs> just you put the cat in a funny situation. he kind of tells you what he <laughs> you <like.
2: laughs>
1: What is it about life that you find most funny? like is there something since you were a kid? Like, is it people's behavior? Is there a way in which you were always observing people in a way
0: that leads you to find things that are funny? You know, I was lucky. I, my my family's funny and my friends were funny. I surrounded myself with funny people. To this day, the people I'm closest to are usually the people who make me laugh the most. So uh, I think I've always found inspiration. And, and my family, you know, when we have our get togethers at holidays, everyone's, not telling jokes, but just telling stories in funny ways. And it's just like everyone topping each other with just how what kind of jokes you could do. So I was lucky. I lived in a, an atmosphere where telling funny stories was a part of our life.
1: I love that. And I also don't think it's so surprising because I find that people who have the most depth, you know, can also sometimes be the most funny. Because life's funny. Right. Comedy is tragedy plus time. You know, this is kind of like seeing things, having the ability to see the pain or the frustration in things sometimes gives way to the humor, right? Anyway, I'm so excited for everyone to hear this episode, to go back and get the books if they haven't already, and to um, just keep following along in your journey. Tell everyone where they can follow you and find you. Is the best place your Instagram? Is the best place a website? Where's the best place to send people?
0: Probably mutts.com. It's a the website for the comic strip and we do have a landing page for Heart to Heart, His Holiness's his book. Um you also can get the book there and it'll be autographed a signed copy. You also can get the book at your local bookstore. So I would always like people to go to their local bookstores too. And uh you know, I have an Instagram account. I'm not <laughs> I'm usually drawing, I don't keep it that up, up to date, but it's uh there's a few things there to look at. Amazing and, uh, and I'd also like to mention, too, that I've just finished my next book, which is coming out in September. And this is going to sound crazy, too, but I, I went from the Dalai Lama to I did a graphic novel with the Marvel superheroes. Believe it or not, it's a Marvel comic book, but it's really a spiritual book in disguise.
1: Oh, my gosh. That is so exciting. Well, maybe we'll have you back in the fall to talk about that.
0: <laughs> I would love it. This has been a great conversation. With you, you
1: are such a delight you give people nutrition just being around you. It's just it's very fortifying in such a great way. So we'll put a link in the podcast notes to all this so everybody can just click and get the books and follow you at your website and all that stuff. But thank you so much for being who you are. And
0: Kathy, I have to tell you, this has been very magical because about 15 minutes into this talk, my entire uh, landscaper crew came, and they've yet to do anything noisy, which I've been dreading it the whole half hour, looking at them, walking around, waiting for the noise. The noise hasn't happened yet. So we, they, they, the gods were with us today.
1: I think that's true. You gave me so much. Thank you, Patrick. You're such a delight.
0: Uh, likewise. It's the best interview I've ever done. Thank you so much. Oh
1: my God. I love everything about you and I can't wait to go back and get the other books that I don't have and we'll have you back in the fall.
0: That'd be great. Thanks so much. Thank
1: you so much. Oh my gosh. What a treat to talk to Patrick. Okay. Here are the takeaways. Number one, we have the power to change all of this. We just have to get our hearts and minds in the right place. Number two, people just want your presence and your attention. That's the best gift you could give. Number three, compassion, loving kindness, and altruism are the keys not only to human development, but also to planetary survival. Real change in the world will only come from a change of the heart. It's time for a compassionate revolution. Number four, be kind whenever possible, and it's always possible. Number five, one of the greatest powers is just having optimism. Have faith in the planet and the universe. Number six, believe in yourself and believe in your work. Number seven, when you make a mistake, you just make something that's accidentally brilliant you make a different kind of masterpiece. Number eight, you can't change someone's mind, but you could change their heart and you can change their heart through stories. And number nine, the real success is in helping others. That's how you become a great person. Thank you so much for listening. I know that you have so many things going on. I know that you have a zillion places that you need to be. And the fact that you are here means the world. I'm so excited for the episodes that we have coming up. So please follow us on Apple podcasts or Spotify, please subscribe. And if you're enjoying the show, Leave us a review because it helps more than you probably know. And share the link with someone. If you feel like this episode or another episode could be helpful, please share the episode. A couple of things before we go. Don't forget, I'm hosting a virtual retreat June 5th. You can reserve your spot at kathyheller.com slash code. And if you want to come to my in-person retreat June 25th through the 27th in Florida, you can sign up at kathyheller.com slash retreat and you can get the virtual treat then included for free. I'll leave you with a song. I love you. I'll talk to you soon.